Okay, so welcome everybody back to Brubble, a podcast gathering young voices and perspectives from around and in and around the Brussels bubble. Today, we're playing around with a new format, a panel exploring and analyzing the top news stories of this month, September 2022. Um, for those listening in uh, via podcast, this will be uh, on most major podcast platforms. Feel free to also check us out on YouTube where we should have a live video, and vice versa if you're on YouTube and only want to listen and don't want to see our beautiful faces. Check out the podcast, but yeah. And leave a comment, leave a like, you know, show us what you think of this format. So before we move into the first topic of discussion, because we're going to go rather broad here, you know, really hit all the topics. I want to go around the table, introduce who we are, and I'm not going to forget myself, although I will do myself last out of, you know, you know, manners. So, Nikos, did I say that properly this time? Because I, I have to apologize. My pronunciation of names is quite despicable. That's okay, that's okay. We can, uh, we can fix that over the course of this podcast. So, hello to everyone. My name is Nikos Theodosiades. I am 25 years old. I uh, come from Greece, and I currently work uh, at the European Commission in the Secretariat General, um, developing briefings for the President and the eight Vice Presidents of the Commission. On top of that, I, I'm also working on the EU's first ever voluntary national review on the implementation of SDGs. And uh, I also have some activities outside of the Commission. I am co-chair of the Policy Working Group for Economy and Trade at the European Democrat Students. It is the largest uh, student organization uh, in Europe. And uh, the topics that I really, really push for wherever I go is um, getting young people involved in policymaking, getting them involved in decision-making, because I really think there is no youth shouldn't play a role. What should play a role is how prepared and developed and nuanced your, your ideas are. But uh, I always root for young people when they try to join politics and policy. Yeah, no, great to hear. And I, I like the broader overview you bring, because, I mean, this will be a broad episode, as I've said two times already. Zhao, you're up next. Tell the kind people thank, who you thank are. You. Thank you very much. I'll try not to screw up after this bright presentation of my fellow Nikos. Uh, and greetings to my, my other fellow panelists and also to the millions listening from home. <laughs> and, uh, of course, thank you for this opportunity for being here. Uh, my name is João Pontes, I'm Portuguese, and I work as policy assistant in uh, DG Grow, the European Commission. Currently, I deal with um, the Recovery and Resilience Facility and also the European Semester. This is my second time here in Brussels. I've been here in 2020 and 2021 while I was working for the Portuguese Presidency of the Council of the European Union. I dealt with subjects such as internal market, industry, technical harmonization, tourism, better regulation, and so on. So I just hope for, th to, for this to be a very fruitful discussion. Yeah, yeah, no, it was funny, too, because we ran into each other at a young professional, or what was it, young professionals in foreign policy event? Yeah. Where we instantly launched a passion debate on energy security. And yeah. I'm glad he still tolerated my existence in the same room, because uh, <laughs> we tend to butt heads a few times. So we'll see when we get to that segment how we do. <laughs> That's what we want, right? That's why we are here. Exactly, you know, lock yeah. those horns, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for good viewership. Yeah. Yes. I mean, talking about locking horns, we'll move to the Frenchman in the room. Julian, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. I mean, I'll, uh, I'll introduce myself too. I'm Julien Hoez, a political expert who's worked on campaigns across Europe and uh, even starting to go global, having worked on Brexit, European parliamentary elections and French elections. 
and I work within the European Parliament ecosystem, providing support as a consultant and within the uh, European Political Foundation. And on top of that, I'm a local uh, representative for the party Renaissance from France, while being a geopolitical expert, an IR expert, and an expert on political linguistics and political behavior. Sweet. That's a nice portfolio to bring. And it kind of reminds me that I, myself, Simon von Hoover, am a bit of dark horse here because I, I work for Microsoft, a more government affairs related uh, strategy planning. And I've been in Brussels for about a year, enough time to kick off a lovely podcast series called Brubble, not Bruble, as some people call it, Brubble. I just want to stress that. Um, but yeah. So, so how have we been doing today? How's the, how's the weather treating you? How's the Brussels lifestyle? How's our, how's our weeks been? Um, so far, it's uh, it's been good. I think uh, we can all agree that today was one of the more pleasant days uh, <laughs> over the past month. Uh, the sun was shining, the sky was clear. Um, it's a Friday, uh, so we really can't complain. I think life is quite good in the bubble right now. I suppose so. I mean, I mean, there's a nuclear threats over our heads, but you know, life is quite good in the bubble. That's that's all, that's all we need to hear. And winter is coming. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. In more ways than one. Yes, in more ways than one. So we yeah. should get prepared for that, energy-wise. But with winter coming, that means that September is ending. And that's what we're going to be looking at here today, you know, really focusing a bit on what this month brought to us and what implications it'll leave throughout the months to come. And to do that, we're going to focus on a bunch of topics, energy security, Ukraine, the State of Union, the Italian elections, the right-wing shifts throughout Europe. So if you're interested in these, stick around and hear our professional or semi-professional opinions. Uh, talk about myself here, not my esteemed guests. So we were talking beforehand, and we wanted to start by focusing a bit on Ukraine, which I think is the dominant issue within 2020 as a whole. And September as a month brought some interesting developments. We've seen the conversation really reignite following some Ukrainian counteroffensives, which were blessfully quite productive uh, for them. Where do you think the Ukraine conflict is right now, and how do we see it you know, moving forward? What do we think the trajectory that we've seen throughout September? I mean, it's going in a really complicated situation now to the point that I think three or four hours ago, Ukraine officially applied for NATO membership, not just saber rattling, but officially applying, which now puts uh, everybody in a very awkward position where NATO doesn't necessarily want to trigger the process because it could inadvertently drag NATO into a conflict with the Russian states. But on top of that, you've already got Vladimir Putin pushing the every button he can and saying with his speech today that effectively we are at war with the West. We have to deal with the West as if they were our enemy as well, which is probably going to make the energy situation even worse for just about everybody because it's also led to some very interesting attempts at sabotage with the Nord Stream pipelines and is going to hit us all hard in several ways, including environmentally, if these sabotage attempts continue. Yeah. And, I mean, talking a bit about how we felt the Ukrainian situation throughout the month, you two, you both, I mean, I don't expect you to draw from your European Commission experiences, but just observers in the bubble. How have you felt the situation progress throughout the month? Um, yes, I can, I can start on It was a complete surprise for everyone in the world, actually, the, the counter-offensive and how it resulted in like uh, taking a huge chunk of um, the Kharkiv Oblast was no easy feat, especially contro controlling Izium, which is an important network for major hub supplies for the Russian army. So it was actually pretty good, well-succeeded first phase of the counteroffensive. But um, 
and this will actually for uh, for Putin will actually have some short term impacts, namely like uh, decrease on troop morale, increasing on partisan activity all throughout the, the Ukrainian controlled areas, and also uh, this can actually be a starting point to further convincing the West on uh, that the West help is actually something that it can make a difference on the, under the Ukrainian conflict. But uh, nonetheless, we'll need to understand how this will play out, especially in terms of escalation. Yeah, and I mean, escalation is quite one of the big fears that we're hearing thrown around here. And if you have any thoughts on the nuclear escalation, you know, buzzword beer, is it a buzzword? Should I actually be taking those, what is it, magnesium pills, iron pills? Iodine. See, I, I haven't bought them yet, so... Yeah. <laughs> it's always good to, to stock up on, uh, on those pills. Uh, but um, I think, n- number one, okay, b- before I begin anything, I would just like to express that I'm, uh, I'm here to express my personal views and not uh, mm-hmm. anyone else's or mm-hmm. any other organization that I may work for. Uh, that being said, um, first, we, we really owe a big, massive thanks to, to all Ukrainians, men, women, and children. They're, they're giving us a lesson, and um, a historic lesson in resilience, in what it means to fight for your freedom, to fight for democracy, um, and to fight for their own self-determination. I think uh, in Europe, sometimes we take those things for granted, uh, and yet, here we are in the 21st century, in 2022, uh, and we have a war not in our back door, in our backyard, in our front yard. It's it's right next to us. It is um, um, it is something that just one year ago would have been surreal. Uh, but on the other side, we all as Europeans are responsible for not seeing the signs. I I heard from a lot of my uh, uh, my friends, uh, Scandinavians in the Baltics, that said that. We were telling you this for for years, um, and the truth is, we as just ordinary Europeans did not listen. Perhaps we did not want to listen. Perhaps it did not suit us to listen. But um, here we are now. Before we start moving on to to the next phase of how we expect this war to go, I think we need to stop for a second uh, and understand the leader that is responsible for this war, and that's. Putin. Mm-hmm. Now, to understand that man, I think we need to go uh, a little bit back, uh, because the way that he doesn't play by the European r- rulebook, he doesn't play by the Western uh, rulebook, and um, the truth is that uh, n- neither should uh, should be, because Ukraine is beating him technically in his own game. We've seen a lot of developments in September, the sweeping advances that the Ukrainian military have made are definitely, to a very large extent, because of all uh, the weaponry and support, lethal and non-lethal, that the West is providing to Ukraine. Uh, But at the same time, it's a personal victory for them on the ground, out of morale, out of determination, and out of tenacity. Because maybe Putin can try to mobilize 300,000, 500,000, 1 million but the truth is that um, people in the opposing side don't really seem like they want to fight this mm-hmm. war. And it's not just about mobilizing your army, but it's also about the logistics behind it, feeding it, 
transporting it, providing it fuel. So we're going to see a lot of developments. It's going to be a very important winter, no less, because of the uh, situation with the energy crisis. And might I just add that uh, not only did Ukraine submit its NATO application, it submitted an accelerated membership application. So really we're seeing uh, Putin has done more for EU and uh, Western integration, uh, and especially on NATO, uh, than we ourselves could have done in the past 10-15 years. Yeah, I think that's definitely very inspiring on one hand, but also very traumatic that it got to this extent. And I think it's left all of us as Europeans wondering, are we actually even doing enough to support Ukraine in this conflict, in their struggle for their freedom uh, against this oppressive force? And I think that was one of the major points that even the State of Union dwelled upon, about are we doing enough to support this? Are we, as you know, a bloc, helping enough here? Do we think we are? And do we think this support will go up or down in the months to come? And do you think that the extension papers will have an effect on this? So the, one of the big problems, and this is something that extends to what Nikus said, which is that we got very... Sorry if I just uh, butchered your name. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so, it's fine. It's perfect. <laughs> but um, there's a big... Um, we have a problem in the West, and this is something that a lot of us were dealing with when we were trying to point to the warning signs of almost 200,000 soldiers on the Ukrainian borders, that when a lot of us were yelling, Putin's about to invade, everybody kind of went, yeah, but there's not been a major invasion in 30 years in Europe. We don't need to worry, it's not going to happen. Putin's a geopolitical mastermind, which ended up being completely false because the guy's a clown on wheels. But what's happening now with the way that we're approaching the support system for Ukraine, and this is something that, from the French side at least, we've been struggling with quite often when it comes to our discussions on strategic autonomy that go back to the Sorbonne speech back in 2017, is that a lot of time when we talk about the need to get aggressive about military issues, the individual national cultures and not um, failings, but chips in the shoulder started showing. The Germans, for example, were always quite difficult to get involved in aggressive military endeavors, including when it comes to providing weaponry. You have countries that have had a history of authoritarianism who have also sometimes struggled to, or if they have struggled, continue to struggle with the need to be more military aggressive and also in the East, with a lot of the states that were pushing aggressively for the need to fight against the Russian influence and against the Russian ability to attack Ukraine. There's also a slight issue there where they feel like they've not been listening to. It has caused some frictions in the process as well. And some of them are also, in the case of Viktor Orban, trying to shut down the whole system in general because it's inconvenient when it comes to energy prices back home with elections on the horizon which uh, makes everything even more complicated than it arguably already was. Yeah, definitely. I think this leaves us a bit. Where will we be in October and November and December? I mean, looking forward a bit, and I know as I feel like we have international relations backgrounds, we are terrible at predictions. I always say that. But do we see this issue remaining the forefront, the leading issue, which I hope it will? Do you think it'll be the gripping issue by the end of October that it was in September? the deriving force throughout the European debate? Yeah, it will still maintain. It will mm. still maintain the course, at least it's my opinion. Uh, let me just be a little bit of a provocateur on uh, <laughs> something that Nikos just said, and I think like it's 
on the topic, which is um, even the, the president of the European Commission said that we did not listen hmm. what was there. And I ask, I can ask broadly, uh, did we not listen or did we choose not to listen and not to see? Because the signs were there. Signs were there for a long time ago, since Georgia in 2008, 2014. So it has been a recurrent situation. And we just just maintain the same posture of finding um, 21st century solutions, if you want, postmodern solutions to fight against a person that is pretty much a 19th century. Uh, and ignoring the geopolitical reality in a lot of cases. So in that, yes, in that scenario, yes. And that should actually make us think about what is happening inside of the European Union. Yeah. And this is a debate that concerns all of us. Uh, going a little bit back to what Simon asked, where are we going to stand on October? I mean, winter was actually... I was, t- I was trying to joke a little bit about the winter is coming thing, but mm-hmm. it, there are some thought about this situation, which is, which is if winter is coming, we know that we need to be prepared for this. We did. We are doing some stuff. The Commission is actually doing some stuff on that regard, and even the member states. Um, but you need to do more, especially because when it starts to impact first... The, the company, so first the industry, because we do not know what, what is going what is going to be with the with the supply lines on gas, on energy, and also about people. And we have like a political calendar. We are going to have countries, big countries like Spain, that are going to have elections. Yep. So we do not know know how this is going to play out and how the public support will actually come. I was hearing that in a few days, a few days ago, like even in I think it was in Czech Republic, yeah. uh, eighty thousand people on the streets um, protesting yeah. against against the war, against the situation, yeah. and actually being pretty much leaned towards Putin. So this is a disturbing thing. This is a disturbing thing. And we saw it in Italy too. A lot of Maloney's campaign mm-hmm. was, uh, we don't need to, uh, she wasn't explicitly against uh, supporting Ukraine, but there was a lot of talk about maybe this isn't our fight and maybe our people shouldn't be suffering for this. And Berlusconi himself was saying, I was just trying to replace Zelensky with someone nicer, you know. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember those words. I remember. Although in in the in the case of Meloni, contrary, for instance, with other populists in Italy, she's actually pretty much keen no, on supporting she, she, Ukraine. She's quite good on this. Yeah, yeah. and the sanctions. And yes. the sanctions. She, yes. she specifically mentioned that, but <laughs> then that begs the question. Um, you tried. Uh, you tried to be the devil's advocate. Yeah. Um, Thank you for noticing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Disclaimer. <laughs> Julian, you mentioned um, that Putin is, is a clown. Um, I did mention amongst the reasons uh, that we didn't listen is perhaps it didn't suit us um, to listen. Um, considering what's happening in Europe, in, in a lot of countries, like you just mentioned, mm-hmm. um, in Czechia, with uh, with a lot of protests, there's a strong sentiment uh, as well in in Bulgaria. There's uh, and in other countries as well. People have, of course, every right to to feel and to think what they want. That's what sets us apart from Russia, a country like Russia, where you can go 15 years in prison for uh, having certain apps or posting things on Twitter. That is our strength because I've. I've had multiple times over the past month people tell me that they don't like that we take this it takes us so long to take decisions that is our strength 
Our strength is that we can sit here, we can debate in, in a podcast, we can go to our representatives in the European Parliament, in our national or local assemblies, and we can tell them that we agree or we disagree. Now, um, I'm just going to go on a small tangent. Go for it. Go very for small it. one. <laughs> because we did agree that if the topic comes up, uh, we would go on a side tangent. Now, we did not listen. And just, you also missed another example. And Chechnya in the early 2000s, Putin used the same playbook. And for uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan in Nagorno-Karabakh, it was the same playbook. And it's the same playbook being used now because there are people being killed in, uh, in Armenia. And we are not talking about it. We are not talking about it. Um, as a Greek, I am afraid that what is happening to, to Ukrainians and what Ukrainians have been called upon to do, maybe one day in the near future be called upon on Greeks. I really, really hope in the depths of my heart that I'm wrong. But at the same time, uh, I also feel like I owe it to, to my fellow European citizens And I have a very strong European sentiment, and, and everyone that knows me, actually Joao can attest to that, he knows me quite well, knows that. And we are saying it again now. Listen, we, it's, it's problematic for us to consistent, consistently make deals with people who do not abide by the same rules as we do. Now, there's a very famous quote by Putin, and one of the first political books that I read uh, that got me in politics and in IR was, uh, I may butcher her name, I, I do apologize, Anna Politkovskaya, which was a Russian journalist that wrote about Putin decades ago. Decades ago. Because she understood his playbook, she understood the way that the former KGB agent operates, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, it cost her her life. It cost her her life. Because, well, if you want to uh, Google it and read the Wikipedia article, but uh, I'm not going to get into that. But one really famous quote that I've heard from Putin that has followed me through the entire war in, in Ukraine is, I remember him saying, when a fight is inevitable, make sure you strike first and make sure, make sure you strike hard. Now, this is exactly what uh, Putin has been using all along. This is what he tried to do in Ukraine. Because I remind you, if, for instance... Uh, Zelensky on the day of the invasion took up the offer of a lot of European leaders to flee the country, flee to safety with his family. Ukraine would have fallen because effectively it would be a massive country with a lot of strength but without a leader. Mm -hmm. He stayed there knowing full well it might cost him his life to fight for what he believed. And I take you back to a similar situation for instance in Afghanistan not so long ago, where there the opposite thing happened. As soon as the Taliban started making advances, the political leadership left and the country fell. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think those are very, I mean, those are points we have to really have to digest, I think, because those are strong words. But what really stood out to me is that Putin's quote again from striking first and striking hard. And as we're moving into October, we've already seen the end of this month, there is some alleged striking first going happening on some of our pipelines. If that's the Russians, if that's somebody else, nobody's confirmed. But I think that really says that is our energy security the next thing that's going to be stricken at, if that's a proper English word? It already has. It already has, I agree. Yeah. It's, uh, Absolutely. 
because uh, let's let's be entirely honest and this is why i'm gonna have to disagree on something you said recently earlier about the uh, russia's ability is that we learned that russian corruption which had already undermined the ability of the russian military to actually just be active you know sergeants selling away equipment on russian ebay uh, stripping uh, vehicles for metals to sell on the black market this kind of stuff we saw that aside, outside of the possibility of a blitzkrieg in Ukraine, the Russian military faltered and started imploding, particularly when the European and Western aid started coming in and sanctions started biting. And this has put Putin in a desperate position where, one, he has to rely on his primary tool, which is the levers of energy, and effectively now putting an energy blockade around Europe, as best as he can, despite the enormous cost to the oligarchs who underpin his his regime. But on top of that is now even pushing him to, as his conscripts and poor, extremely poorly trained conscripts are now going into the front lines, surrendering almost immediately in some cases, abandoning the fight or being pushed back quite heavily. He's now relying on more provocative measures such as what may be the sabotage attempt on the pipeline. I mean, for example, one thing that happened, and this is something that I think is quite interesting that you kind of hinted at, is that Putin does do his best to provoke these situations. He spent months, well, years even, trying to provoke a reaction from the Ukrainians to break down ceasefires, to get them to attack Donbass more ferociously when he had the soldiers based around the country so that they would be easier to break through the defences. But on top of that, this is why he's now making these threats of military, uh, of nuclear engagement, sorry. And this is why he is now saying, we've annexed these territories. If you keep pushing into them, we will retaliate as if you're attacking Russia. Now, touch back on your previous point on the nuclear threats. I don't think it's realistic mm. because he's playing the levers. He's losing control, which is why I'm starting to use the term clown when I speak about Putin. And if anybody here doesn't follow it already, follow the Darth Putin Twitter account. It's brilliant. <laughs> I second that. <laughs> but um, what we're seeing is we're seeing a state that's a leader who's losing control, whose situation is more and more precarious, where he had to bring his military back into order on the conscription issue. And on top of that, threatening to nuke a neighboring state, despite knowing that it has been said repeatedly, if Russia engages in, in a nuclear manner, the West will retaliate. In non-certain circumstances, it has been said by the French, by the Americans, and it has been made a red line. And Putin doesn't want to push that because once he breaks that barrier, it can be considered, due to the fallout, almost a declaration of war officially against NATO who would suffer from the fallout of a nuclear blast. Even a tactical nuclear weapon could impact Poland if, if it was simply using the Donbass, for example. Yeah. Joe, I saw you give a Julian, a, a stare during that conversation. Any thoughts on that? No, it was just it was just your impression. No, because they were they were they were speaking very well actually. Um, no, I, I agree with Julian on that regard. I don't think that nuclear weapons were, nuclear weapons were actually going to be employed. Although um, there is always the situation of we always think about nuclear weapons as a strategic weapons like launching. Yeah. Usually, people never think about or never approach the um, tactical way of that they can actually be employed. Yeah, so, like, not even like uh, not launching a missile, but sometimes like using a small device. That you know, this is actually pretty much possible to do that and uh, use it as a further way or a last step way for uh, escalation, like giving the final blow and maybe use it as a dissuasion. 
No, of course. I mean, because I don't think like if it is like a huge strike, of course it will yeah. provoke some kind of reaction. But if it is like a small one, I don't know. So I this mean, is something that I should beg be you to into do. question as well. Another variable that until now we haven't considered China. True. Yes. So nuclear threats, whether or not they're realistic, should not be the the question. Someone in possession and with an ability to order a nuclear strike is making a nuclear threat. That, in and of itself, should remit a very, very, very strong consideration. We cannot underestimate, at this point in time, anything. Just like we shouldn't have uh, underestimated the fact that there were 200,000 troops in the border of Ukraine and Russia, mm -hmm. and we did nothing. Um, we as in the West, collective. Um, now, okay, primary weapon of Putin is not energy, it's fear. There's energy is merely instrumentalized. He's using fear, he's trying to strike, because that's his playbook, he's trying to strike fear in uh, European people's hearts and the West um, to, to try to push perhaps more pro... Um, more... Uh, Governments, let's states. say, yes, yeah. that uh, that are a bit uh, warmer to to some of the aspects that he uh, he's advocating for, and so on and so forth. At the same time, we're seeing a Russia that is out of pure necessity being forced to move eastward uh, to China. Now, this is a very, very, very unique and very precarious situation in terms of, uh, of, let's say, this, let's call it friendship with benefits, temporary benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, because at the same time, China understands what's at stake here. Because people see, Russia sees Ukraine, China sees Taiwan. Um, Russia does not want to indebt itself at such a level to China, and I'm not even talking about financial indebtedness. It does not want to indebt itself and commit itself in ways that it after cannot undo. Putin is a strong man. He, he's not okay with being subservient. He's not okay with, uh, with being the number two. He, is, he wants to be the alpha. He wants to be the number one. And I take it back to, to the way that we perceive Putin specifically um, and, and the, the, the his regime and, and the Kremlin currently, I'm afraid we put too much emphasis on what the economic interests of Russia may be. No, it was not in Russia's economic interest to go to war. No one can possibly at this point in time argue that. And a lot of people that come from that standpoint in Europe were saying, no, but he's going to destroy the Russian economy and mm -hmm. like it will completely suffocate the country. And yet here we are. Time and time again, he has shown us that he is not an economic leader. This is not uh, a, a European Union country. He is a geopolitical leader. At this point in time, we cannot put anything out of the table in terms of we cannot underestimate that person in any way. We must take the things that he says seriously because he's shown us that he is willing to um, to, to live up to the threats that, uh, that he, he calls out. Um, but I also want to echo, because war may have more advanced technology, but in its essence, it remains and has remained the same for a very long time. 
I remember reading the book of um, of Julius Caesar, uh, Conquests on Gaul, and he said, never leave no opening of retreat to an army that you're about to crush, because you don't know how essentially a pack of wolves with their backs against the wall and nothing to lose will react. And to that extent, I agree with some voices that even if it's not uh, pleasant, there needs to be some some sort of uh, of uh, of communication because diplomacy must prevail. No, uh, I'm I'm definitely hoping for that too. I would like just to have a, an end on that. I go for it. For the majority, I agree with you, Nikos. Uh, especially when you say that Putin is not a geopolit um, economic leader; it's a geopolitical one. And um, on that, I would like to say energy is actually a geopolitical weapon. Of course. And um, on that regard, I understand that he tries actually to strike fear into the hearts of the people that oppose him, especially us. But the thing is, for the common European, I do believe, for the common people, I do believe that energy will actually be the issue because it's affecting its life. More than actually think, I don't know if people actually lose their time knowing uh, or fearing uh, nuclear attack, although there is a possibility on that. But they actually know that when their salary comes, yeah. they are having less and less money to spend. Mm. But we are because of the energy costs. Exactly. And how it implies their way of life. Exactly, because it's so the blatant So for me at least, energy is the issue and the weapon. Uh, but yes, please. It's we are seeing outright the pure and blatant instrumentalization and weaponization of energy mm. by by an individual that wants to strike fear. Because he, what you just said, Putin knows that. Mm -hmm. And Putin understands that. And also we have elections coming up. Mm -hmm. A lot of elections in a lot of places. And Putin also understands that. This is the same sort of instrumentalization as we saw, uh, for instance, by some other countries, such as Turkey, mm -hmm. when it comes to, to the, the migration. Yeah. Well... I suppose on that note, and I don't want to dwell on Ukraine the whole time, even though I think we should, I want to wrap this up by going a quick question around the table and kind of ask, given what we know about Putin, given what we know with the weaponization of energy, given all the other things surrounding this, look at the Nord, Nord, uh, look at the pipeline incident. How would you respond as the European Union? What would you be doing in the days and weeks to come after, let's say, Russia attacked a pipeline threatening our energy supply? And I think quickly if we go around... And I know this is not an easy question, but... I mean... No, please, go ahead. Please. No, uh, I do believe like, the, the North Stream was already shut down. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't working. And we knew, like, for a long time that um, something could happen. And during winter, we would not have the gas uh, supplies working. So we are just working for a long time, at least us as the, like, the European Commission and also the member states. I would like to enforce on that. Uh, to actually find not only alternatives, but to actually find ways to cope with the situation. So, of course, this is this is a, an event like, like this is a sabotage event. But on the way, you know, it will at the grand in the grand scheme of things, it won't make actually any difference. You put a, I mean, here we're butting heads again on energy. But uh, yes, sure, our reserves are actually pretty healthy at the moment. We're, we're doing well on that front. I just want to add, fair, as of yesterday, 88.2% uh, 
energy yeah. storage with daily increment of 0.022%. Yeah. Just remarkable. But yes. going to your point earlier, it's fear it's striking to ours. It's an attack on a vital piece of infrastructure. Those images or those few pictures going on Twitter of just a bubbling gas experience, that's what's going to be remembered by people, not the actual coal. Julian, you had a point beforehand. Yes, I mean, I don't think that this potential sabotage attack really changed the calculation aside from giving us something that's more useful for spreading the message to our fellow citizens. Basically, the goal needs to be keep supporting Ukraine, keep giving them heavy weaponry, give them the munitions they need for their high mass and attackums and all the equipment they need. And on top of that, just make sure to keep them in our minds i mean a lot of what i mean i had a friend who told me this recently that a lot of my social media from their point of view has just been encouraging people to engage more in ukraine and we did the same thing during the election campaigns in france as well like yeah things are tough at home in france but we still need to actually be engaging aggressively in supporting ukrainians and i think that is the goal now especially as it gets cold especially as things get problematic we need to keep funding and supporting them through this war because firstly we'd want them to do that for us but on top of that we have a duty to keep the message live while people are starting to get distracted and saying oh maybe we shouldn't be doing this because yeah. my energy yeah. costs went up by you know 200 percent in some cases and that's where we should actually act is actually on finding real solutions either they are short term or medium term to actually overcome the situation yeah so and and uh, I just want to say that we will, we will. I have no doubt that we will come to to some sort of agreement. There have already been an announcement of measures yesterday, uh, announcement of the eighth proposal of the eighth san sanctions package mm -hmm. by by the Commission. We cannot, uh, Simon, pretend to be uh, something we're not here. And I think that's exactly why you invited us here because you wanted us to give you our opinion based on the standing and the experiences and the perspective yeah. that we have. Mm -hmm. um, I don't doubt at all the competence of the people governing us, at least on, as in, maybe not 100% of them, but like the overwhelming majority of the people governing us, I believe uh, at the highest level are competent. And I speak uh, at least for the organization, for the European Commission. At the same time, um, um, we we can't rush to conclusions. Mm -hmm. We cannot rush to conclusions. We don't know. Maybe, maybe this was an accident. Maybe this was an act of sabotage. And us um, talking and talking and talking about it just feeds into the narrative of of the people that right now, unfortunately, are uh, are our enemies. Because uh, I think no one amongst us wants war. But unfortunately, we are in a setting, Europe is at war. Perhaps we forget that, but we are right now yeah. a continent at war. Our economy is at war. Our, maybe we don't have soldiers fighting beside Ukraine, but Ukraine, in my opinion, is fighting not just for Ukraine, but for really all, uh, uh, all the democratic worlds. We really need to wait and see uh, what, uh, what is going to happen. At the same time, we need to take measures to protect our critical, most critical infrastructure because this just showed the degree of vulnerability and that is no doubt due to the fact that um, th that some of this uh, infrastructure is extremely difficult to to defend but we need to increase our security 
uh, here. And at the same time, also one aspect that unfortunately no one is talking about is the environmental. Mm -hmm. We need to do everything we can to stop these leaks and make sure that the damage to the environment is minimized. Because in this war and in this energy crisis, in the short term, I understand that our priorities have changed. But in our medium to long term, we must understand that our priority is should be one, the green transition. Because our problems would be solved if, uh, in terms of the energy crisis, uh, to, to, to be clear, if, um, if we had dealt with, with these um, dependencies, problematic dependencies, long time ago. Unfortunately, people did not want to bear the cost and the political decisions, and yet we are here now. Repower EU is, is a very big chunk uh, of this, and sh so should be the recovery and resilience plans. And there are dozens of EU-level instruments and funds uh, and tools for us to use and employ as countries. But at the same time, there needs to be national responsibility. There needs to be national responsibility. And I'm afraid that in a lot of countries, people don't, don't want to take responsibility. And either there is a, a, a blame shifting between the previous uh, governments, uh, the, 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 the politics in Brussels, or like uh, the opposition, there's always someone to blame. And there is, but there must always be the impetus and the motive to take action. Because if not now, when? If not us, who? Yeah. And I think this is a good place to leave off the Ukraine subject, which we dwelled on a bit longer than I anticipated. But I think it's, you know, worthy to dwell on that subject and move on to a lighter topic the recent election of a self-proclaimed neo-fascist in Europe. Thanks for listening to part one of our two-part look at the month of September 2022. On the next episode, we continue this discussion and look at themes such as Italy, the rule of law, and Europe as a geopolitical actor. You don't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. Bye.